Well, good morning, Sailorville. And a very, very happy Mother's Day to all you mothers there. Let's give them another round of applause, shall we? One of the, uh, one of the buzzwords from the message today is the word power. And Abraham Lincoln said that uh, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. I don't know if you can get more power than that, but more power to you, moms. So... Acts chapter 1, if you want to find a placement in your Bible, Acts, the book of Acts chapter 1. You know, uh, one of the blessings that came out of COVID, in fact, the greatest blessing for our family, for me personally, was uh, uh, because we were so confined for those uh, first several months, uh, our family, I have eight brothers and sisters, I'm way down the line, I'm like number eight out of nine, so... so we Zoomed every other week, all of us together, we'd Zoom. And, uh, and we got to know each other more than ever before. So it was a great play. We're still doing it. And every uh, sibling is tasked, one is tasked every other week with a question that they pose to the rest of the siblings. And a really intriguing one was posed just a couple of weeks ago. And it was this, what parent are you most like, mom or dad? And we had to give it, we had to give out the one we were most like and then defend ourselves before the other siblings. And uh, so I concluded very quickly that I was most like my mother. And when I got done explaining it, they all went, yeah, that explains a lot, Pat. So anyway, (laughs) I used to, during the banquets, which we just had a a senior graduate banquet the other day, I used to cringe, you know, when the the seniors would would talk to their moms and say, I I really love my mom because she was always there for me. And it kind of had the ring of, you know, like Miss Universe, like, what do you want? most, but world peace, you know, or something like that. But I don't think that anymore, uh, because it's really, really true. Uh, our moms are, you know, I, I always think of that kid that came, comes running out of his bedroom into his parents' room during a, a, a lightning storm, jumps into the bed, and just scared spitless, and his mommy says, no, oh, honey, you know that you don't have to be scared. Jesus is with you, and, and uh, to which the kid says, yeah, mom, but right now I need somebody with skin on him. Well, nobody puts skin on like mom, amen? And so with that, I just want to give a nod to you moms and a happy Mother's Day to you that are. Let's just pray for you right now. Can we do that? God, how grateful we are on this Mother's Day that we can honor, and by way of prayer right now, every mother in this room and watching online. Lord, what a calling. What a high calling. Arguably the highest of callings in this world, to be able to raise children uh, for you. And to every mother that has given every effort to do so, bless them. And even the ones that didn't, just bless them today, Lord. Just be so you to the hearts of every mom in this room. And buoy them up regardless of circumstances in their lives Because Mother's Day, Lord, we realize is a heavy day for some, but I pray you would take the heavies and lift them, that they would cast their care upon you, because you do care for them. And may we all honor our mothers on this day, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So with that in mind, Acts chapter 1. Now, nobody puts skin on like mom, Uh, nobody except Jesus, (laughs) right? I mean, Jesus put skin on and kept it on, amen? even in his glorified state. And I want to I motivate you this morning 
to reach out to your world, to your particular world for Jesus with three words that come right out of the text. And let's see if you can see them. Proofs, promises, and power. And here we are, Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, first book referring to Luke's gospel, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, ascended. We'll see that in a couple weeks to come. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, the ESV says, Kind of a weak translation. Some of your Bibles have a modifier there like the New King James. Many infallible proofs. I, I like that. Girthy. And more biblical. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive, what's the word? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end or the ultimate parts of the earth. So during Jesus' 40 days, almost a month and a half on earth, following his crucifixion, following his resurrection, he's now glorified and physically present. And as such, he poured into his disciples, assuring them with three motivations to reach their world. And that's what we're going to give you this morning. Three motivations to reach your world. And the very first one is proof. And you saw the word there. Proof of the resurrection, of his resurrection. If you were with us last week, Pastor Kurt talked about the ten recorded appearances of Jesus, including a time when he appeared to 500 people. Let me tell you something. 500 people don't hallucinate at the same time. Okay? But that's just 10 recorded. If Jesus hung out for 40 days, 40 days with Jesus, that means dozens, hundreds, perhaps thousands of times he was affirming that he rose from the dead. Think about that. This word proof, here you see it in verse 3, with many proofs. Or, it's the only time this word, this particular word, finds itself in the New Testament. It's the only time. And the word means indisputable. It means unshakable. It means irrefutable, or as the New King James puts it, infallible. Plato and Aristotle used this word outside the Bible to refer to the strongest kind of proof you could possibly have. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to the early church at least, was the most certain of all facts. And I have a word for you. It still is. It still is. 40 days. The word 40 in numerology is, a, as you know in the Bible, many of you, it's, 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 a, it's symbolic of, of testing, of trial, of, of temptation. But in this case, it's symbolic of affirmation. 
40 days that Jesus Christ raised from the dead, really raised from the dead. And that should be a motivation for you to get after it for his glory, to reach people for his glory. When our two youngest sons came to Jesus, this is not an exaggeration. My wife and I had to pinch ourselves and just ask, is this, is this really true? These authority-resisting, God-rejecting, sin-pursuing boys were now defending the faith and declaring the faith that they once spurned. And after about 40 days, figuratively speaking, we said, yeah, it's real. There's the proof's in the pudding. We need proof, do we not? Just the other day, we had somebody write into the church who had been looking at our doctrinal statement. Somewhere in there, it says something about, the word proof apparently appears somewhere, or some word like it, that you have to prove that you're really a Christian before you become a member of the church. Pretty novel idea, don't you think? And this person wasn't writing to, uh, they were actually criticized. It's by grace through faith that we're saved. Why do we have to prove anything and I responded to them, thank you for your letter. Thank you for your, your inquiry. Um, I didn't say what was really on my mind. I just said, thanks for the inquiry. But the Bible, we, our statement affirms what the scriptures is. John the Baptist said to those coming down to get baptized who were hypocrites, he says, bring forth fruits that befit repentance. Have you ever read that? And of course, you, many of you know, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things have Passed away, all things have become new. So, it's, so the, the idea of proof is replete throughout the scripture. And so when we're talking about proofs here in verse three, we're talking about demonstrative. We're talking about evidences of repeated physical glorified appearances that Jesus made, eating, handling. Even though he walked through walls, he could be touched. First John 1, 1 says, you, we, you, you touched him, we could handle him. So how does the proof of the resurrected Jesus motivate you? Or even does it? Because it should. The resurrection, you realize, it separates Christianity from every other religion out there, cult or otherwise. Every other religion out there has the smell of death all over it. Not Christianity. I was reminded of a cartoon I, I came across where, the, where the, it's like a game show and you've got, you've got Muhammad and Confucius and Buddha, and Jesus, all in a panel. And the commentator says, will the real leader of the world please rise from the dead? <laughs> so there, proving everything. Now, this isn't a study of the book of Acts, but if it was, we would spend a lot of time showing how the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection, because everybody knew Jesus died. The argument wasn't whether he was crucified, it's whether he came alive again. And with that, it turned, he turned the world upside down. And, it was, and they turned the world upside down, according to Acts chapter 17, because they believed the words that Jesus had told them a month and a half earlier during the Last Supper when he said, because I live, you also will live. They believed that. When you really believe in the resurrection, it'll change you. Even before Jesus rose from the dead. Remember Abraham? He's told, hey, Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and take him up to Mount Moriah and offer him as a burnt sacrifice. That's Genesis 22, remember? How is it that he could wield a knife over his own son to gut him is what you did with a burnt sacrifice? I mean, he was going to do it. 
just before the angels stopped. How could, how could anybody do that? We're told in Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19, that Abraham had in his mind the promise of God, which we'll get to here in just a moment, the promise of God, which said he'd, I mean, the seed was going to come through Isaac. He concluded God would have to raise him up. That's how important the resurrection is. That's how it should be moving us if we really believe that we'll raise again. This is what Peter said. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has begotten us again or caused us to be born again, watch this, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, undefiled, does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. All brought to you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when I was sitting at, on a bench with my seven children around me, ages 14 down to one, and hundreds and hundreds of people around the gravesite as they were lowering the body of my wife into the grave, I was so low, I felt like I was going in there, I was so low. And my mentor, my pastor cried out, Nina will rise again. And it was like God himself had said that. I believed it. I had believed it already. But to be reaffirmed of the resurrection just supercharged my life. And it should supercharge yours to get out there and change this world by the power of God, the world, your world, for the gospel's sake. Wes Van Fleet, a pastor and blogger, writing on the resurrection, said this a while back. Some of us need to repent for living like the resurrection isn't true. That might be some of you. How are you living right now? Are you living like the resurrection is true? Some of you have heard the story that I've shared before of one of our missionaries. Uh, we went down, a group of us went down, helped him. Uh, he just got his like fifth church started down in Brazil. And a uh, great time there, about, spent about 10 days with them. And uh, and as we were leaving, uh, I had a conversation with him at, in the airport because I knew that his 14-year-old son had a tumor on his pituitary. It had taken out his eyesight and it was going to kill him. That's what they thought. And I said, John, I said, uh, you know, I'm really sorry about Josh. I just want you to know that as we leave, go back to the States, we're praying for Josh. So how are you interacting with your son? Without hesitation. John said, well, Pat, he said, I had a conversation with him just last week. And this is what I said to him. I said, son... It looks like you got a tumor. It looks like it's going to kill you. So, so here's the deal. If you're going to die, die like a Christian. What kind of dad talks like that to his son? I'll tell you what kind of dad. A dad that believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the dad. His son was a, a, a faithful and fervent follower of Jesus, and he knew that if he died, he'd go to heaven. And so he was saying to his son, if you're going to die, die like a Christian. Make an impact in this world until he takes you out. That's what the resurrection should do to you. It should change your life. During the 1854, 1854 cholera outbreak in London, where hundreds and hundreds of people were dying, Charles Spurgeon said this to his congregation. Who is the man that does not fear to die? I will tell you. The man that is a believer. Fear to die? Thank God I do not. 
The cholera may come again next summer. I pray God it may not, but if it does, it matters not to me. I will toil and visit the sick by night and by day until I drop. And if it takes me, sudden death is sudden glory. That's a man who believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who believed it. Do you? The proof of the resurrection should change everything for you and for me. But not just the proof, as already alluded to, the promise. Verses five, 4 and 5, we're talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit. Again, notice Jesus tells them, he orders them, it even says, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise from the Father. And, and not many days from now, 10 to be exact, they would be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And wow, would that change everything. I got to wonder when Jesus said, you know, you're going to be baptized. You, you know, John baptized you with the water, but in a few days, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I just have to wonder what was going on in their mind. Oh, my goodness, what's that going to be like? They would soon find out. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, now with the Spirit of God, the promise of God, indwelling them was the very thing that changed the world. What has his resurrection done to you? How is it motivating you? How is, let me, here's the question. How is the life-altering power of the Holy Spirit, how is it showing up in your life, wait for it, right now? I was thinking about this, just in our own church here at Sailorville, just over the past couple of years. The resurrected Jesus Sending his Holy Spirit to empower those who believe. What has it done? Just, a, just, a, just in a cursory added, those who are addicted to drugs and alcohol are now addicted to Jesus. Amen? Evolutionist and, and pro-abortion advocates now become creationist advocates for life and missionaries. Angry men now becoming lovers of God. Moralist, becoming humble followers of Jesus. Defenders of atheism, now defenders of the faith. Agnostics, now fervent for God. Those enslaved to immorality and partying, now becoming moral and passionate servants of Christ. And then those seeing life as just a random set of chances, now seeing God as sovereignly over everything. That's what the resurrected Jesus, sending his Holy Spirit into those who, who, are, who are changed by the gospel, that's what it does. That's what he does. By the way, I know what some of you are thinking right now. How come my picture didn't get up there? Well, let me tell you something. There are a number of you who I thought I should put your picture up, and you would have deserved it. But I couldn't put everybody's up, obviously. And I'm telling you that because I was very sad in this process. Because a number of you came to my mind, and I thought, I can't put your picture up. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm not saying that. I'm just not seeing a lot of, lot of progress, not a lot, of, a lot of transformation. Where is the progress? Where is the Holy Spirit's evident work in your life? So, and, and please, by the way, don't ask me after this, was I one of them? Don't, don't do that, okay? Please don't do that. 
But do ask yourself this. Do I possess the evidence of the Holy Spirit's resurrection power in my life right now? Do I? And speaking of power, one more motivation, and that is power. And the word is used here. Power for mission. Look again at verse 6. So when they come together, now this is Jesus telling them they're going to get baptized by the Holy Spirit in a few days. Now they come together. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I, I just chuckle every time I read this. I mean, if you're a student of prophecy, you know, I mean, that, I mean, God used prophecy to lead me to himself. Not a bad thing. And if you're a student of prophecy, you're probably, you got your eyes on Russia and Ukraine, what's going on there? I mean, does the Bible talk about Russia? Yes, it does. Gog and Magog mentioned in Ezekiel in the Old Testament in, verses, in chapters 38 and 39 can only refer to Russia. When is all this going to happen? Is this a prelude to the end? Is the rapture going to occur? That war right now going on admittedly, is both deeply sad and prophetically fascinating. Would you agree? But the disciples' question to Jesus is a non sequitur. It's not, it's not what he's talking about. He's, a non sequitur is that which doesn't connect in the conversation. Jesus was referring to power, not politics. By the way, Jesus' answer that he gave them is still a good answer today. It's not for you to know the times and seasons the Father has set forth. Remember Acts 1-7, because that's your answer to those who think they can make predictions like that. Look what they, they ask again. At this time, will you restore, that means to bring back, the kingdom, that's earthly, to Israel? That's political. Now, I want you to listen very carefully to these next words that I'm going to say. Because they're the most important words most of you are going to hear in this sermon. Unless the Holy Spirit is empowering your life right now, it is impossible for you to see the world and people as God wants you to see the world and people. Impossible. And by the way, you say, well, I'm saved. I don't care if you are saved. You still have to be told that. That's why Paul said to the Colossians, if you've been raised with Christ, Seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on terra firma. For you died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. For Christ, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. That is what God wants our focus, and it's not going to happen unless you are not only indwelt, but empowered, filled, and led by the Spirit of God. So, Jesus wasn't focusing on prophecy or politics. He was focusing on power, and not just power for power's sake. Power to proclaim the gospel to the world. In your case, your world, your sphere that you live in. And notice what he says in verse 8. You will, what power? Look, there's a word, there's a modifier. You will receive power. Do you see that there? Power from God is not conjured up from within. It's given from above. And it comes from the Holy Spirit. I have the joy of working with several military and ex-military men. 
They have, they, some of them have had real combat experience. All of them were outfitted by their respective branches of military. They weren't told when they joined the army or the National Guard or, or the Navy or whatever it was they were, they weren't told, they weren't told, hey, uh, you know, you go find yourself a good pair of boots. You know, they didn't tell, hey, get a good gun that you can, you know, and by the, while you're at it, go to the black market and find an RPG, our enemies got them. <laughs> what? No, they were fully equipped. Our government equipped them so that they could fight battles for their country. That's the point. God does not call you into his army without fully equipping you for the battles to come. Do you believe that? And Peter tells us in the second epistle, chapter one and verse three, we have, obta- by him, we have obtained all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's all there, all the equipments, the boot, the shield, the sword, the guns, the bazookas, whatever you need to bring Jesus to a world that desperately needs him. These are motivations to you and to me to reach our worlds. The proofs of the resurrection, the promise of the Spirit of God now residing in those who believe and the power that comes accompanying the Spirit of God living within us. And I just said the word. You see it? You shall receive what? Say the word. Power. Really cool word, by the way. In the mid-19th century, there was an engineer chemist. His name was Alfred Nobel. If that name rings a bell, that's what the prize would eventually be named after. At the time, he invented the most powerful force on planet Earth at that time. And when he did, he asked a friend who was a Greek scholar what the Greek word for explosive power was. His Greek friend, his Greek scholar friend, gave him this word from this text. And it's the Greek word dunamis, by which we get our word, say it, dynamite. And that's where the English word, all the words came in to play in different languages. From this and from that experience, the man who invented dynamite. But hear this. In fact, he said, I'm going to call my discovery by that name. And that's what he did. Hear this, though. The power the Holy Spirit brings is not just for courage. And if you read the book of Acts, it is that. I mean, I mean, it says, it'll say, Peter then filled with the Holy Spirit spoke to the council. No question about it. It had to do with courage for sure, but much more than courage. The power the Spirit of God gave is the power, now watch this, the power to see as God sees. Your life, this world, your job, your family, your kids, your ambitions, your aspirations. When the Spirit of God is leading you, when the Spirit of God is empowering you, when the Spirit of God is filling you, you see everything differently. And your priorities change. Your earthly goals become less earthly and more Christ-centered. In fact, I've noticed from time to time, uh, there are lots of power verses in the Bible. Like if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things are passed away, all things become new. Many of you know that verse. And some of you know the verse a few verses earlier where it says, the love of Christ constrains us. I love that too. But sometimes in the 
sandwiched between power verses in the Bible are really important verses we just sort of scoot over. Let me give you one right here, right between the two I just quoted. From now on, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Have you ever read that? Though we once regarded Christ in this way, not anymore. That's what happens when the Spirit of God comes into your life, takes over your life, and controls your life. And only the power of the Holy Spirit can point our hearts and our heads vertically towards pleasing God and horizontally toward winning men, which is what our call is, amen? So he goes, you're going to receive power, dunamis, dynamite, when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And you'll be my, what's the word? Witnesses. You'll be my witnesses. That's a great word, too. It's the word martyrios or martyros, martyros. It's a word which basically, martyrus, we get our word martyr from this word. Ironically, most of these men that Jesus was talking to would be martyred, all but one. And so Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses. And he, he, they were standing in Jerusalem at the time. And just, just, this is just, he said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's exactly how the book of Acts unfolds. That's exactly how the gospel unfolded. That's exactly how it came to us. Thank you, amen. We're the uttermost parts of the earth. I want to draw your attention as I conclude, to one little verse, one little verse, the verse, one little word in the very first verse. There it is. Look at it. In the first book of all Theophilus, I dealt, I have dealt with all that Jesus, here's the word, say it, began to do. When Jesus died, he said, it is finished. The work of redemption was accomplished. But the work of proclamation had just begun. How important are these words of Jesus? Consider this. These are the last recorded words he ever said before he ascended into heaven. What more do you and I need to proclaim the good news? We have the proof. We have the proof of the resurrected Jesus. Do you believe it? We have the promise Holy Spirit, who comes to live within us, indwell us, to seal us, to fill us, to empower us. Have you received him? And we have that power incumbent by the Holy Spirit. Do you possess it? That's the question. Do you possess it? Because some of you don't. Some of you just don't. You don't possess the power because you've never had the power. You've never been born again. You've never repented of your sin and believed the gospel whereby the Spirit of God comes to live within you and applies the blood of Christ to your heart and changes you. If you've never been born again, I don't care how religious you are, how intellectual you are, how biblically saturated you are. There's a lot of Bible scholars that are going to hell because they've never been born again. Born of the Spirit. If you're going to change your world, follower of Jesus, those of you who really are followers of Jesus, you've got the proof, you've got the promise, and available to you is all the accompanying power.
power you need to make more than a dent in the world around you for the gospel's sake. But if you don't know Jesus, that's where you start. Repent of your sin and believe on him. Church, let's change this world. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and bless you and thank you for the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, the crucified and resurrected Jesus. And for this commission, and we're going to look at it in a more classical way in a week, but I pray, dear God, that your people who know you will embrace these motivations of the proof that's there that you are, Lord Jesus, the risen Savior, the promise received the Spirit of God living within us and the power to go into the world and change it for the gospel's sake. I pray for those, Lord, in this room and watching online who have never been changed by the power of the gospel. And if that's you, dear friend, humble your heart right now. Acknowledge your sin right now. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I believe you died on the cross for me. And I believe you rose from the dead. I believe it. Can you say that from your heart? And then trust him right now. Lord, I trust you as my personal savior now and forever. May your Holy Spirit change me, empower me so that I might touch others for your sake. And God, we pray as we go from here with proof, promise, and power, we'll change the spheres in which we live. For we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand.